Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Beverly, and I am a grateful member of Al-Anon. I guess that's in case I get hungry. Or if you don't like me, I could stab myself in the heart. Oh, you know how pathetic that would look. Well, I do know my, the day that I came into Al-Anon. I came into Al-Anon on the day that I put my 15 and a half year old son into treatment, which was February 9th of 1981. And I am so grateful to be here. And just thank you all for being here to support this workshop and to come out on a Saturday. And I heard somebody back there say that the mind can only absorb what the bottom can take. I'll try to make this painless. I'm going to break in at 1030, which is, so you only have to sit for an hour and a half and then you can go out and there's some restrooms back there and some refreshments in the corner. And, you know, if you do feel like you have to move around, please do so. Go around the back edges and, but, you know, you're not, you don't have to feel nailed to this chair. This is such an incredible opportunity for me to do this. I loved speaking at conventions and, you know, it's been a, it's been a grace kind of a thing for me to have been called to be able to do that from time to time. But the thing I really love doing most of all are these workshops. And I want to tell you how this workshop was born because it was born as a fundraiser in the summer of 1990. My life was grim in the summer of 1990. My father had just died. We had just found out that my son was also dying of AIDS. And he had just moved to Texas a short time before this was going to take place. And this lady called me up from our intergroup office, which is also a literature distribution center. And she said to me, we'd like to have a fundraiser and we would like you to do a workshop from about nine in the morning till noon. And did you ever just feel like you absolutely did not have anything to share? And that's what I said to her. I said, I haven't got a clue. I mean, I just lost my dad. He's been sick for two years. And then in the midst of all that, we found out my son was also dying. I said, I just really don't have anything to give. And she said to me, well, we all have something to give. And so then we sat there and I said, oh, she, she, actually, she made me feel really guilty. And so, because she had, she had, she was, you know how we are, we are determined. And once we've made up our mind about what we want, well, she had made up her mind that I was going to do this workshop and there was no way that we were going to not do this workshop. So that's what happened. So she said, what would you like to do? And I thought, I guess she didn't hear me. I just told her I didn't want to do anything. And she said, well, it's in 1990, everybody was interested in relationships. And if you could put relationships in the title of anything, you would have, you know, the multitudes would show up. Well, so she says, let's, whatever it is, let's put relationships in it and you do whatever you want. And I thought, I says, well, that's kind of dishonest. You know, we don't want to do that. So we tossed it around a little bit and ended up with this relationships and self-esteem and the relationships being many. So I'm going to talk today about seven or nine different kinds of relationships. My relationship with Mr. B was 41 years old on Monday. And so we have gone through many phases from ooh baby, ooh baby, ooh to, you know, just 
peaceful living and then some, you know, we'll have some chaos and we'll, you know, we have had everything. You know, we've lived through the death of a child. We've, you know, we've nurtured grandchildren. We have pets now where children used to be. We have had all kinds of phases to our relationship. It would be very boring if I told you about my relationship only if that was all this was about. But what I'm going to talk about today are my relationships with God with my with my Al-Anon program, my relationship with myself. I've had, you know, when I got here, I had no relationship with myself at all. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what I liked. I didn't know what my favorite color was. I didn't know that I had this gift of photography. I didn't know that I had, could eventually become a nurturing, wonderful grandmother because I was a, I was just a, an unruly, unmanageable, angry mother. And so there were many phases to my development finding out who I was and what I liked. And it cost Mr. B a lot of money until we finally settled into something that I thought was me. Um, and, uh, and he's been just really gracious about it. I'm not sure if he understands the journey that was involved in that, but he has just, um, he's just let me be who I needed to be. So then there was the relationships with him and the relationships with my grandchildren and my, my daughter-in-laws. I have two sons with my sons um, and with friends and money. Um, we all have a lot of, seem to have a lot of problems in the area of money and money being a god or, you know, this, this feeling of not having enough. So I'm going to talk about a lot of relationships. Probably I'll mix in there a little bit my relationship with this incredible golden retriever dog that I have. And um, we also have an 18-year-old Siamese cat who I just realized, a friend, I had a house guest for a couple of days, and I'm going to tell you two things. First of all, she discovered, she told us our cat was deaf. That's why she's screaming so loud. And secondly, a few days after she came home, she called me to thank me for, for opening my home up to her, and she told me, she's Beverly, I don't know what else to tell you except that you walk the way you talk. And, and she has listened to me do workshops in, in California for years, and you know nobody is really sure that you are who you are when you're up here. And, and she affirmed to me, she said, you walk exactly the way you talk. And I thought that she gave me the greatest gift that I'd ever been given. And, um, and it's not like it, it puffed me up or anything else. It, she just assured me that, that the evidence of the program was available in the way that I lived my life with, with my husband and in my home. And it was a wonderful thing. It was a wonderful thing. There wasn't, she could have spent five million dollars on me and she couldn't have given me anything better than to tell me that she, in her opinion I walked the way I talked. So, um, I live in Louisville, Texas. I've lived there for 24 years in the same house. Um, I attend meetings now at the, at the Friendship Al-Anon Family Group, which is only two and a half miles from my home, but I was a founding member of the Horizon Al-Anon Family Group, and I went there for 18 years. And due to the construction of, of um, the Bush Expressway or 190 or whatever it is, State Highway 190, it just got too complicated to get to a meeting. I never knew if I was going to be on time, and it was, it, you know, I'd get there and I'd be frazzled, and there were some other things going on. You know, when you grow, your perception changes, your needs change, and I realized I was changing. And, and so this complication with the driving and everything, all of a sudden one day, I went to the Christmas party three years ago and I walked out of there and I thought, 
I think I'll just be a full-time member of Friendship. I had been going every Monday for one year to just kind of see if I could make it my home. You know, change is so hard for us. And I realized that I could. Um, I was exposed to wonderful program all over. Um, you know, my husband and I do this tape business, and, and I'm with people. I mean, my entire life is, is Al-Anon and AA related. I mean, I have no outside. Um, there's just nothing going on on the outside that keeps telling God, are you sure this is all you want from me? And he goes, yes, in your case it is. <laughs> he knows I can get very distracted, so he has created this whole life of program around me. And it's just, it's, it's a wonderful life. I have a, I have a wonderful life today. Now there's days that, you know, I, I want things a little different. You know, I'd like to go live up in the Pacific Northwest with my grandchildren, or near them, not, not too near, don't want to watch them real close. But I like the climate up there. So some days I'd like to do that. And some days I think, well, another dog would be nice. Or, I, or some days I think, you know, I, I'd like to travel. Well, I do that, you know, enough. I don't need to do that. And there's just some things, and all of a sudden I'll get myself feeling a little restless, and I have to bring myself back and think, you know what, Beverly, you have an absolutely incredible, perfect life. And I do. Um, not problem-free, not at all problem-free. Please understand that it's not problem-free, but I have a wonderful life today. And if nothing else, I can see that. And that's great. Um, <clears throat> so I've kind of, I'm going to ask you, why are you here? I don't know if you want to answer, but kind of think inside of you. Why did you come today? What are you looking for? Kind of know what you're doing. Why are you here? Um, you know, where are you with your program? Are you in the program or are you in the fellowship? Makes a big difference. I hung around the fringes of the program or the fellowship for almost a year because I loved the coffee and I liked the laughter and I loved the speaker meetings and I loved the birthday parties and I loved chip night and I loved, I loved listening to the Al-Anons, most of which I did not relate because I've always been a self-willed, um, go-get-it, stomp-on-you kind of an Al-Anon. I think there's two kinds of Al-Anons. There's the kind like me. And my and several of my friends like Ellen, <laughs> and then there's I really believe that that you know there there's kind of the the doormat kind of Alanon who just really got abused and you know was threatened and and unworthy and everything. And it's not that we didn't feel those things, but then there's the really aggressive kind, <laughs> the barroom brawler kind of Alanons and Sue D and Vinoy and, and Mary Pearl are kind of those kind of people, and I fall into that category. And once I kind of realized that that it changed. It was like, we, no wonder we're not all going to agree on the same path to recovery because we don't all have the same experience. But I've always been self-willed and demanding, and I've always wanted the biggest piece of pie. Winnie, if you listen to her tapes out there, she'll, she'll tell you that she was taught, and it took forever for somebody to teach her to take the biggest piece, the first piece and the biggest piece for herself, and then allow the children to be served next. That was not my case. I always took the first and the biggest for me. So um, anyhow, why are you here? Um, do you still believe that you can change someone other than yourself? And uh, that is such an, that is an, an idea that's inside of us. It's like in every cell of our skin and our soul and our heart is that if we could make something about our life different, we would be better. And that's why we're all here. That's what Al-Anon really is all about, is that we are, we are discontent with the people and the places and the things around us as a result of being 
affected for a long period of time by the disease of alcoholism, we become thinking, you know, if we could get rid of this person, if we could have this, if we could have a bigger kitchen, if he would just quit drinking, if he would be grateful for all of my wonderful attributes, you know, I would be better. Well, the fact is, is that isn't going to happen. So what Al-Anon teaches us is that even though we have been deeply affected by the disease of alcoholism, that we can be happy whether the alcoholic is drinking or not. We can be happy whether Carol still sits in the next cubicle at work. We can be happy even though this year they have decided not to give us a raise because of you know, the economy. We can be happy even though we haven't got enough money to buy the new dress we'd like for the holidays. All of these things, you know, interfere with our ability to be happy. And that's because of the way that we were raised and the, and the effects that alcoholism has on us, that we think if something out there was fixed, we would be better. And in this program, we're taught to find a higher power, a God of our understanding, and to begin to change everything about us. <laughs> So, do you want to be here? Or has your sponsor sent you because she's pulled her hair out and says, I don't know what to do with you next. Please go to that workshop and listen to that lady. Maybe she'll say something that will help. Um, and that's okay, too. You know, we didn't get to this program. My husband and myself and, and our children, well, our oldest son got here because he probably wanted to be, but maybe not. All of our motives for coming here are different. But what we hope is that you'll stay long enough for recovery to begin to happen. And from that thing where somebody says, go, and then all of a sudden you think, oh, my God, it's Tuesday and I wouldn't miss it for the world. And that's the, that's the switch that begins to happen. It's the day you claim your chair here. It's the day you come because you want to be here. And um, I don't know when exactly that happened for me. Somewhere in the first year. It wasn't in the beginning. I did not. I, my intention was to be here 28 days. Um, as soon as Scott got out of treatment on March 8th, we put him in on, on February 9th, and, and on March 8th, I was out of here. So, I mean, that was my intention, and um, I'm coming up soon on a 22nd birthday, and can you imagine that? I mean, from thinking I'd be here 28 days to being here almost 22 years, I mean, that is just absolutely amazing. And then I've already asked you to ask yourself if you're in the fellowship or you're in the program, and there is a vast difference because we can sit in the rooms of Al-Anon, and I'm sure in Alcoholics Anonymous, in the fellowship for years, and not have one bit of recovery. Because, see, we have this little trick thing called being able to talk the talk. And as long as we're talking the talk, nobody's really sure except you whether you're walking the walk. And sometimes, because we're people who live very comfortably in denial, you can think that as long as you're memorizing the steps and the traditions and you know little blurps out of your ODAT book or your courage to change or, or you know exactly where to find something in, in the dilemma of the alcoholic marriage and you're sponsoring a bunch of people, it does not mean you're in the program. Only you know if you're in the program. Are you really taking these steps into your heart and are you really trying to apply them? Have they become a part of you? Have they become your very pulse? You know, and all of a sudden I found out one day that I didn't have to work the steps, that the steps were working me. And that, you know, that's another one of those things where I thought somewhere or other I switched and I stepped. Now, I depend largely on the fellowship today. Oh, I mean, I love the fellowship, but I have a program. And so, you know, you can ask yourself those questions because those questions, it is a big deal. I am a woman, so I will be speaking to you from that experience, 
and I am an Al-Anon, and I will be speaking to you from that perspective. <clears throat> One of the things that I know here, and it's, it's been a real peaceful part, is that no matter what's going on around me, that God will always calm the child, but I am never guaranteed that he's going to calm the storm. Because the storm doesn't include me. A friend of mine was talking about putting a hula hoop on the floor, and anything outside that hula hoop was none of my business. Somebody else says if it's beyond the end of your nose, it's none of your business. Somebody says you can stretch your hands out just as far as they'll go. You can lean if you want to. But if it's beyond the tips of your fingers, it's none of your business. So, but the business is, is that I can be calm no matter what. And even if it's beyond the end of my fingers or even if it's in here, whatever it is that's going on, God promises to calm me, but he doesn't promise to fix the situation. Um, you may be sitting there today believing that this program will not work for you, but if you can sit here for the next few hours today and believe that this program has worked for me, that's all that I, that's, that's enough, is to know that it works for somebody else. And then eventually, hopefully, that'll change, and you'll begin to understand that it is, in fact, working for you. And, um, and that's been one of the great things for me is that I sat there for a long time looking out there seeing God work miracles in everybody's lives, and I thought, you know, I, but I'm so good at this, but he's not, he doesn't even know I exist. And then one day I realized, you know, through some little situation that God did, in fact, well, it wasn't a little situation. I'll tell you about it later on. It was quite a big situation because it was the day that God got my attention. So um, I guess one of the things that, that happens to you when you're in recovery is that um, uh, you just can be anybody you want to be. And that's the wonderful thing. And there's a little, there's a kind of a poem or a thing. It's called, When I Am Old, I Shall Wear Purple. And I love that because it gives us permission to do just about everything. And it's not conference approved. I'm going to stay as conference approved today as I absolutely can. But this is not totally conference approved. So every once in a while I'm going to slip in a little something that I've gotten out of a book or or somebody has mailed me or I've picked it up off of a table at an Al-Anon conference. And, and I'm, so I'm not going to be totally 100% conference approved. But... Um, I have a conference-approved program. That's all you need to know. But I love I love this thing because it allows us to be eccentric, and we are such rigid black and white people that never change one single thing about us because mom did it and grandma did it, and and alcoholism demanded it of us. And and my husband was a bully when he was a drunk, and he scared that he just scared me all the time. So he kept me rigid in an old belief system. He wanted to control me, and that's the way he did it. And if I'm not calling him names, bullies are in the big book. You know, it's a form of alcoholism. It's a form of fear, and that's the way he controlled the universe. And his wife was to bully me. My mom, you know, was was a kind of a bully in her own kind of a way. She just would get out her cat of nine tails and just, you know, just paddle me with that. And so she would control me. And then all of a sudden, I come to Al-Anon, and they say you can be anybody you want to be. And we don't even know who's in there. What an exciting thing, you know, to find, to come a place where you find out who you really are, what you like and what you want to be. And this little poem says, I shall wear purple with a red hat which doesn't go and doesn't suit me. I shall spend my pension on brandy and summer gloves and satin sandals and say I have no money for butter. I shall sit down on the pavement when I'm tired and gobble up samples in shops and press alarm bells and run my stick along public railings and make up for the sobriety of my youth. 
I shall go out in my slippers in the rain and pick flowers in other people's gardens and learn to spit. I can wear terrible shirts and grow more fat and eat three pounds of sausage at a go or only bread and pickles for a week and hoard pens and pencils and beer mats and things in boxes. But no, we must have clothes that keep us dry and pay our rent and not swear in the street. We need to set a good example for the children. We will have friends to dinner and read the paper. But maybe I ought to practice a little now so people who know me will not be shocked and surprised when suddenly I grow old and start to wear purple. And um, it's just fun. It, it's a lot of fun to do things that are kind of ordinary, out of the ordinary. And I have encouraged that in my grandchildren. And I allow little kids to take their shoes off and run in the gutter and rain. And, and I let them have big umbrellas and, and, you know, just do things that they would ordinarily not, you know, get out, anything that's out of that rigid controlling where you get to experience something about God or about fun or about just being who you are. So I'm going to begin with my relationship with the program. I'm not going to spend a lot of time telling you about my past and giving you the, my, my story because this is my story. Um, the, the things that I'm going to talk about in relation to the program and, and God and my, and my relationship with myself and my husband, that is my story. It's just going to take me a little bit longer to tell you. In the ODAP book on page 329, it says a fairly unusual idea in some Al-Anon groups is that we attend meetings only to hear other people's tragic stories, blow-by-blow -blow descriptions that we can perhaps identify with. This is one, but only one, of Al-Anon's functions. But when the stories are a continual rehash of the alcoholic's misdeeds, nobody hears exactly uh, nobody hears anything except that we all go through pretty much the same experiences. Where, uh, where, where is the growth in that? If I want to determine how much help a meeting can give, I should ask myself how many of the people here tonight have learned something about applying Al-Anon. How many have given me a constructive idea that I can take away with me and use? This is the only measure of a truly valuable meeting. Today's reminder, what I say at an Al-Anon meeting should not be a recital of the details of somebody else's faults and actions. I have come to get knowledge on how to deal with my frustrations and difficulties and to impart what I have learned in Al-Anon to others. Personal problems can be discussed with my sponsor and another Al-Anon friend. And so basically I'm going to try to follow that today. Um, we're all here because we've been deeply affected by the disease of alcoholism. Um, we all have our very own uh, encounters and, and experiences with that. And what I want to do today is tell you how I got from point A to point B because I'm telling you I'm not the same woman that was in the program 22 years ago. <clears throat> today, um, to, th there actually was more to that. A truly valuable Al-Anon meeting is one in which we concentrate on principles and do not discuss personalities. I will, however, discuss my personality. Uh, today, I have. Um, uh, today, I will share how I have changed, how I have, ch how my life has changed, how my relationships have changed, and how my God has changed and become mine. Uh, unless you, this is your very first Al-Anon meeting, I am not going to say anything new. 
I think that anybody who walked into the doors of Al-Anon within the first, if you were there one week, went to three meetings, you have heard absolutely everything that you need to know about Al-Anon. You've seen the slogans on the wall, you've seen the steps, you've seen the traditions. Hopefully they have read the suggested welcome and the suggested closing or the Al-Anon preamble. The welcome, however, and the closing are filled with promises. And if you ever want to have a great Al-Anon meeting, just have one on the opening and focus on all the promises in there because it's incredible what, what were promised in that opening and in the closing. So I'm not going to say anything new. You know, there's the concepts are on the wall in my group, and we read the concepts along with the steps and traditions. And we focus on, you know, the, the, the literature. We have literature meetings and step speaker meetings. So nothing's new. But what we do here, it's called repetition confirms and strengthens, and faith comes. And the other problem that I have is I forget what I know. So on a, the reason I go to Al-Anon is because anything that I learned last month, it's gone. Then I have a new problem, looks like a new problem, actually the same old problem, but it has a different face on it. Sometimes its face is George, but sometimes its face is Dorothy. And so I think, oh, new problem, need to go to Al-Anon. Then I find out it's about the same old thing. I'm not letting somebody live and let live. So, you know, we just keep walking through life, applying the same little pieces of wonderful, wonderful spiritual information to problems that look different, but they really are not. They're basically, I feel like I came here with this can of worms. I have about seven worms in my can, and I keep messing with those same worms day in and day out, month after month, year after year, and my worms are selfishness and self-centeredness. Um, I like at control. Um, gossip is in my can of worms. I have a ter you know, I, it is something I'm, I'm working on harder now, and this year has been a terrible year because I have, you know, I am really concentrating on what does it really mean? Who you see here, what you hear here, when you leave here, let it stay here. It does not only apply to the room of Valinan. It applies to when you're speaking to your sponsee on the telephone. When you're speaking to your sponsor on the telephone, it's a matter of that that trust that we have to gain here. And so what was gossip for me 22 years ago, it's changed today and it's a little more subtle and I try very hard, you know, to really monitor what I'm saying. But every once in a while, like everything else, it takes a different face. And so, um, you know, the, the, the worms in my can, you know, are, um, are always there and I just keep messing with these same worms. Um, Let's see. I think the one thing that I was asked early on that really focused me in on my program, I was six years in Al-Anon, and I got a new sponsor. And, um, and she said to me, well, if we're going to start to work together, what I want to know is what are you powerless over today? And I said, didn't you hear me? I'm, I have six years of Al-Anon. And she said, yes, Beverly, I heard you, but what are you powerless over today? It never occurred to me to... to to look at that on a daily basis. What am I powerless over today? And any day that I forget to look at what am I powerless over today, I, you know, I'm going to be in deep doo-doo because something's going to come up and it's just going to bite me in the butt. So I have to always try to look, review my day in the morning and think, you know, what's coming up today or what is there that's, that I'm going to be powerless over today. In Al-Anon, I'm learning about me, how to change my behavior, learning forgiveness, what caused my resentments, how to resolve conflict. Uh, Al-Anon gives us our first look at people like ourselves because all of us have spent our whole life with our drapes shut, the front door closed, 
and living behind these walls thinking nobody knows how we live. Most of us didn't know how we lived. I mean, I thought my life was perfect. I thought my children were perfect. My car was perfect. My shag rug was standing up straight. Dishes were always done. I iron and starch collars. I mean, and so if you would have knocked on my door on February 8th of 1981 and said to me, you know, Beverly, I've been looking through this little slat in your Venetian blind, and I think you have alcoholism in here, and I would have just shut that slat and said, you mind your own business. Everything is just fine here. Can't you see my cars are washed and waxed and my floor is shining and my rugs are straight and everything? And see, I didn't know that I was covering up this huge secret, not from you, from myself. I didn't know I was living in active alcoholism. And do you know why I didn't know I was living in active alcoholism? Because it was the only way of life that I knew. My father was an alcoholic. My mother reacted to his alcoholism. My brother became an alcoholic. My dad's brother died of alcoholism. My mother's dad died of alcoholism. You know, then I married an alcoholic. He didn't look like one. He had a job and a car. I mean, you know. The fact that he didn't show up on dates and, you know, lost things that we couldn't find. I mean, I didn't know because that didn't look like my dad. I just thought that he was quite the guy. You know, I just thought he's exciting because my father, see, contrary to my husband, was always home at 5 o'clock. He always parked his car in exactly the same place. After dinner, he sat and read the paper. And if we didn't pay attention and be quiet and eat our dinner, he banged on the table, which was a porcelain-covered metal table, and everything jumped up in the air and fell back down again. And then he'd say to us, eat that damn food because the children in China are starving. And I'm telling you that I'm still eating for the starving children today. I mean, it's just... So I got here, you know, and I didn't know that my life, there was anything wrong with my life because it was all that I knew. It was all that I knew. My behavior was like my mother's, and, and I just thought if I could get him under control, we'd be just fine. And the other thing that I found in the program was unconditional love. It was my first experience with true unconditional love. And when my grandmother was alive, she was 4 feet 11 inches high and wide, and I was born this tall. I'm, I'm almost 5 feet 8 inches tall, unless I've been shrinking in my old age. I don't know. I still like to say I'm that tall. But I got this tall really early, which gave my mother an opportunity to tell people I was big. It wasn't until I got with you and you told me, you're tall, Beverly. You're not big. You know, you're really, you're, you're tall. There's a big difference. So when my granddaughter's with me this week, and she's off with some friends that she met in Crested Butte, having a good time, and when people say to her, oh my God, she's gotten so big, and I'll look at them and say, no, she's grown tall. Because, and it doesn't bother Sarah, doesn't bother her at all for people to say you've gotten big, but boy, it really bothers me. So um, the unconditional love that I experienced was from this grandmother who I sat on her lap until I was 16 years old, shortly before she died. The next experience I had with unconditional love was my first sponsor. And that lady always used to say to me when she hung up the phone, I love you. But during the phone conversation, she would say to me, okay, Beverly, okay, just calm down and blow your nose. I'm still doing that today. If you see out this mountain of Kleenex is there, I still have to blow my nose a lot. So unconditional love happens in this program. And um, in, our, in either our welcome or our closing, it says we do not have to like everybody, but we have to love them in a very special way. That's unconditional love. 
And that's about gossip and criticism. We have all, we're, we are all wounded when we get here. We're so, we feel so unworthy. And this is a room full of people who accept us for exactly who we are. You know, in no matter what state, and I've gone from states of fear and anxiety and, and controlling and anger and on mountains, in valleys, and no matter what has happened to me personally in my life and my journey, you have loved me no matter what. And no matter where I go, people love me. They remember me. They hug me. They tell me they're glad to see me. It took me a long time to believe that when you were telling me that, that you really meant it. That you really, and today I know you mean it. Because I'm thinking, I feel that same way about you. I am so happy to see you. And there's people, there's wonderful faces in here that as I'm looking around, I've seen, and you know, people that just love me. And, and I love you back. And it's so comforting. But most of us, it's going to take a long time to be able to feel that love and to accept it. I mean, why would everybody, anybody come up to you and say, I love you, Beverly, if they didn't mean it? You know, why would they say that? And um, why would they tell me that they liked my outfit if they didn't mean it? Why would they waste their breath? You know, or, or why would they, any compliment that we have, why would people in this program do that if they didn't mean it? So we have to finally get enough self-esteem in this program to believe that what you say is the truth. And we don't lie to each other here. We really try not to because it's damaging. The other thing that is important in the program is to share honestly. The sharing, the honesty of the sharing is the way that we grow. <clears throat> now sharing honestly can take two forms. We can share honestly about all of these people's character defects and the perception that we have about our problems and our miserable lives and we can be really honest about that and descriptive and we can be we can have a lot of gestures involved in that and we can be funny about that and we get a lot of attention but the fact of the matter is is it's really negative we're not giving anybody anything that they can put in their hat and take home and use so the honestly the honesty and the sharing here is to have is to have the ability to share honestly about how our worst things have become our better moments. Let's give people back something that they can use. Think about that, you know. And we try really hard. We don't uh, demand it, but you know, we ask that we keep the focus of our meeting on the topic and that we share from the Al-Anon perspective. It's part of our it's part of our opening um, because if you come from another 12-step program, your perception of the problem is different. So we try to share from the Al-Anon perception. We try to share our victories so that the newcomer and the old-timer, because I forget what I know, can take home something and use it or be reminded and go, I could have had a V8. <laughs> so um, we have to be careful the level and, and our understanding of sharing honestly. I think that the hugs <clears throat> and the gifts of friendship were the things that I really cherished the most in this program. I loved, I did not love to be hugged in the beginning by the men. I liked going into the AA room and having the men hug me. I loved the men. Now, because of my situation with my mom, I didn't like women. Most, you know, the, I, I just had a hard time with women. Um, I didn't relate to the women. I really related much more to the men, especially the alcoholic men. Well, of course I did. Um, and I had to learn, and I did that by going to women's conferences, how to accept the hugs from women and the gifts of friendship from women. And today, you know, that is my life. My women, not only the women I sponsor, but my women friends, that is my life. And, I, and people 
not only in my home group, but in other places, I'll say to a hurting person, go over there and tell Beverly to hug you. She gives wonderful hugs. And I do. And it's a gift of this program. I can take another woman or hurting person, and because I've had this, this thing with a death of a child, I get sent a lot of hurting people. I mean, that is, without a doubt, one of the deepest scars and wounds that your soul will ever survive, is the loss of a child. And I can't tell you how many women and men have been sent to me or call me because I have that like experience, and all that they really know is that you can survive. Because in the first year after you have experienced the loss of a child, you can't even believe that anybody can live through a year. And so I get I get to do this. It's a, it's such a privilege. I was at a convention last weekend, and my hostess lost her daughter a year ago last January, July 1st in a one-car accident on a rainy highway. And it was such a, I mean, I can't even imagine a knock on a door by a police officer. I mean, I got to nurture my son through five years of illness, and by the time he died, it was like it settled inside of me that I was going to lose this child, but I can't even fathom that. And I have so much compassion for people who lose their children in, in fluke accidents and they're here one minute and gone the next. I can't even comprehend that. And so, you know, I get this great privilege of being able to hug hurting people. And it's not just about that. It's about anything. And sometimes we forget to breathe. And my deal is I'll hold them for a long time. Sometimes they'll weep and blow snot in my collar. And we just, you know, we just, and I hug and I hold. And then all of a sudden I realize that it, I may have held them for three or four minutes and they have not breathed. And I say, I want you to know I'm not going to let go until you breathe. And all of a sudden they go, and you feel like they just lost 15 pounds. We hold so much in, you know, in our shoulders, in our, in our upper torso, so much in. You know, we're just, oh, if we breathe, we're going to lose control. And so we have to learn to breathe here. And, and the hugs, you know, and these little reminders to do that are all the wonderful gifts of the program. I went to a place called something mission burritos or something last night I want you to know I still have a little mission burrito in my mouth <laughs> um, laughter now when you grow up in alcoholism and you and then you marry an alcoholic there's not a lot there was not a lot of laughter in my house there was not a lot of laughter it was serious we don't laugh nothing's funny nothing at all is ever funny you have to be heads up here and then I couldn't let my guard down with my children because if I would let my guard down with my children I would have felt I felt like I would have gonna lost lose control and so I was always rigid and angry and there was not a lot of laughter in our house now I want to tell you the kind of laughter there was and it's two kinds some of us can be really really funny regarding somebody else's character defects and if we can point out, you know, something about the other person, I have a great sense of humor. I can be really funny. And I used to be really funny pointing out George's character defects. And one day when I was very new in the program, he retaliated against my sense of humor and he hurt my feelings publicly. It was public humiliation. And I called my sponsor the next day and she wasn't there and I called her back and she still wasn't there. So I... Her husband says to me, well, Beverly, why don't you tell me what's going on? Maybe I can help you. And I says, he hurt my feelings. I says, we were with a bunch of people last night, and this is what, well, well, what was your part in that? Well, I didn't have a part in that. I only said, and he says, well, I think your sense of humor was directed at him, and he felt bad too. 
And I never realized that that was the way I was using my humor, was to um, make somebody else look small so I could look big. And that was the whole deal. It was about my self-worth, my self-esteem. If I could make you look small so I could look big, and the only way I could pull that off was to, ha was to do it with humor. Now today, I love to laugh, and it, you know, and, and the sillier it is, it, I'd rather it wasn't about anything at all, just laugh about stuff. Um, anyhow, I, have to, I laughed on the phone with my sister yesterday, my niece, this is sad, she lost her cat a week ago Thursday, and she has just been in such pain about this cat, and, and I happen to know the Humane Society girl comes to our meeting who adopts and rescues cats and so I hooked them up and they put an APB out on Riley and you know hoping that they could find Riley. Well my niece put her two babies in the back seat of her car yesterday and was going to run a couple of errands and out of absolutely nowhere um, this big bird and oh, the a cockatiel flew and sat on her shoulder. <laughs> my sister called, she says it cost her $75 for a cage and everything else, and I says, well, you know what, <laughs> maybe it was God's plan that she couldn't have the cockatiel if she had a cat. <laughs> I says, and you know what they say, a bird in the hand. <laughs> and, you know, it was funny, but I thought, you know, maybe this bird needed a home. Who knows how God works? We have no idea what the plan of God is, but you know what, she was supposed to have this cockatiel, and he needed a drink and some food and seems to be happy. So um, so it took a sad thing, and, and she has this joy of this new pet, you know, and so anyhow. Encouragement. We encourage people in this program. We encourage people. I don't know how you are, but I'm always saying, you can do it. You can do it. Wow, that was great. You really said that? Wow, that must have taken a lot of courage. You really did that? Oh my God, that's wonderful. I love to be encouraged people because people encouraged me. I was afraid of height, couldn't go up and down elevators, stairs without bats, couldn't climb mountains, and all of a sudden as I began to step beyond my fears, people went, you really walked up the stairs? Wow, that was great. Oh, such courage. You know, you really, you really did this, you really did that. So we encourage each other. When we stop bad behaviors, when we gain new behaviors, if we have the willingness to share, people are going to go, cool. And then they'll go, shoot. You know, if Tracy can do it, I can do it. You know, if, if you can do that, I can do that. If Joan can do that, I can do that. You know, and we are just, all we do here is encourage each other to just become more than what we were. Um, now, on the other hand, in order to really feel like you are not in the fellowship, but in the program, you should have responsibility to your home group, have responsibility to your service office, take a small job. And my small job in the beginning was to be the literature chairman. And I thought I did that so well that I did it for seven years. Now, nobody told me that it was about rotation of service or that we should allow the newcomer to be literature chairman because it gives them an opportunity to feel like they're part of the group. They just let me be literature chairman for seven years because I had some idea that I was the best literature chairman there ever was. And finally one day somebody says, why don't you uh, be treasurer? You've had banking experience, our treasurer. Why don't you be treasurer, Beverly, and let go of literature? Well, I want you to know that was my literature. And I said, I'd be very happy to take on the treasurer, but I don't want to give up literature. And they said, well, you can't do both. Come on, Beverly, let literature go. Let somebody else have it. Well, I kind of looked around the room, and I thought to myself, 
There is nobody. Now, there's 50 or 60 members of Horizon. I could not see one single person that could take over literature and do it nearly as well as I did. Well, I want you to know that the least likely person got the literature, and I was so upset. I thought, she will never be able to pull this off. Well, I want you to know, less than two weeks after Anne was literature chairman, she came rolling in the back door with a literature cart that she had made at the local high school with a teacher that was the craft, or the, the shop teacher, and it has racks in it where they could put the literature up and it was displayed and it had a locking door on it where you could throw you could either throw some money into this hole and it was locked or else they could put the donations in there store extra literature in there it had a padlock on it it was on these big huge ball bearing rolling wheels it was painted blue and had white shelves and I looked at that and I thought well I'll be damned <laughs> You know, I, how dare her show me up like that? <laughs> so, I was chairman, I was the, I was treasurer for my new home group. You know, they said sign up if you want to feel a part of, be a part of. So, I got into this new friendship group just as they were, you know, going to, going to, um, elect new officers. And lo and behold, there was the treasurer position open, and I thought, well, with my banking and all my experience with Horizon, I'll just be their treasurer. And I held that position for three years because it was easy for me to do. See, I can justify anything, including violating the traditions. Um, I thought, it's easy for me to do in spite of my travel and all this stuff, and I'm always, then it encourages me to go to the group conscience meeting and the business meeting. So I, and then, we had the beginning of our group conscience meeting when we were electing new officers, and I had held this position three years, and out of the new book, um, just for I think it's called Just for Today, she read a page about rotation of service. And I looked up at the board, and I thought, hmm, I'm the only one that's held a job for that long. I guess she's talking about me. <laughs> so I rotated out of my treasury position and allowed somebody else to have it. And you know what? This girl is doing a fine job. And... Um, and, you know, but it's just, it, it's just that weird stuff. It's that, you know, we, we just latch on to something. Maybe you're not like me. I know, hope you're not. <laughs> but it is important to have a responsibility to your group, even if you're the one who picks up all the trash and throws it in the garbage can and puts all the chairs back. Our group, you have to, they, they ask for cleanup volunteers on Saturday morning at 8.30. Now, I'm hardly ever there on Saturday morning at 8.30, but today's my last our last work and my last speaking commitment until the 10th of January, and so I intend to go be a cleanup person for the few weeks that I'm home because I can do it then. And um, I'm really good behind a vacuum cleaner. <clears throat> um, risking to share where you are today. In 1986, my husband lost his job, and I, and I thought I've got six years in Al-Anon, and I'm certainly not going to let them know that I'm afraid. I have financial insecurity. I have... I was doing this role-playing kind of thing. I needed to let you know that I had six years of recovery. And certainly anybody with six years of recovery would not be afraid if their husband lost a job. And finally one day, the pain got so great, I broke down in a Saturday morning meeting, and I said, George lost his job after 33 years with this big corporation. He got laid off. And, um, you know, what are we going to do now? 
and I don't know where the money's going to come from. You know, we've got so much severance pay and so much um, unemployment, and then it's gone, and, you know, and he decided he was going to start a business, and I got really scared about that because I've had this corporate paycheck and the insurance and life insurance and all those things that you have when you were our part in a, and then I had my identity. You know, behind every good man is a good woman. Well, I didn't know that about myself until he lost that job. And I, a whole bunch of my ego was wrapped up in what he did for a living and how many people he employed and how many secretaries he had and how many supervisors he commanded. I mean, all this stuff. I mean, I just had to say the name of the company and that my husband had been there that long. You know, I could see people stand up and look at me a little different. Well, you know, then um, I got the rug jerked out from under and I thought, who am I? It was one of those times where I had to sit back and wonder, who am I, you know, and realize I'm not my, the numbers in my checkbook. I'm not what I drive. It's I'm not what my husband does for a living. I'm not where I live. I am just who I am inside where God lives. And so um, that was another another thing that I had to learn is is to risk where I sh where I am today. And finally that day, I had to tell them that my husband had lost this job, and I was scared out of my mind. And um, and they went, oh, you know, oh, we've had that experience. Of course, everybody's had some experience. And so they helped me. You know, they helped me that day. And the other thing is, is to allow your sponsor to know everything about you. You can't just hold back. And if you're having any kind of little intuitive nudges that maybe that's not okay, be sure to know that it's intuitive, an intuitive warning, and not fear. There's two different things um, because... You know, not everybody that you ask to be your sponsor is well yet. And um, we have to remember that we are all not well yet. And and if you're getting some kind of little nudge inside, ask yourself if it's fear or if it's God asking, you know, and beware. Um, and I'm speaking from experience on this. I'm not going to share it any further, but I am speaking from experience on this. Um, and make sure that you're involved with a group who is using the traditions. If your group is not using the traditions and you're bringing in outside literature and outside 12-step programs and, and allowing people to share from books that are not conference approved, you know, that is in violation of the traditions and it's watering down the group. And what I'm afraid of, and this is very, very selfish, my Sarah is 14 years old. She comes from a long line of alcoholism, a long line of alcoholism. And I don't know whether she's got the bad bean or not. But what I want to know is whether she doesn't have the bad bean, she is really attracted to alcoholics. She loves alcoholics. And so even if she doesn't become an alcoholic, I am absolutely convinced that she will probably marry one and she's going to need you. And selfishly, I want this to be exactly the way that it was in the beginning when I came here 22 years ago. And the only person that can, that can keep it like that is, is us. We have to be willing to stand up for what we believe in, to stand up for those traditions, for stand up for the steps, to, to not embarrass anybody publicly if they, if they read something from an outside piece of literature, take them aside afterwards. And even though your heart pounds and you get to sweat, you know, all under here, it, we have to stand up for what we believe in because can you think, where would we go if we didn't have Al-Anon? What would we do? We can't get this from a church. We can't get this from any other organizations. Al-Anon is here for those of us who suffer deeply 
from the, the effects of the disease of alcoholism. There is no other organization anywhere that gives us what this program gives us and also re reunites us with the alcoholic, you know, to where we go from anger and resentment to compassion for this and understand that this is a disease and it's not about us. And it was such a wonderful thing. I didn't cause it. I couldn't cure it. I couldn't control it. It's not about me. My reactions to alcoholism are my responsibility to overcome. So that's, that's the thing. Um, Winnie Yeti gave me this statement a long time ago, and, it, and it's something that I am always aware of. Not, and it's a, little, it's a little hostile. I have to warn you. It says, not everybody who comes to Al-Anon comes to get well. They find a fertile field of sick people they can manipulate and control. And you will find those kinds of people in Al-Anon, you know, that they are not here to get well that they are here, you know, and they form little bunches and, and they control people and all of a sudden they kind of go off by themselves. And, and uh, we need to be really mindful of that. Um, one of the things, they told me a lot of things in the beginning that I didn't understand, like, you either grow together or you grow apart. Well, what exactly does that mean? It's telling me he should have his program and I should have my program and then they're saying we either grow together or we grow apart. Well, it means that we need to be working these programs simultaneously, not together, and then we're growing together. Or if one of us doesn't go to a meeting and the other one does, one's going to grow spiritually and the other one's going to lag behind and then it causes like a more alcoholic conflict, you know. So we need to grow together or we grow apart. Our group needs to grow together or we grow apart. They told me if I couldn't, couldn't keep it unless I gave it away. Couldn't keep what unless I gave what away? Well, I couldn't keep my recovery unless I shared it. That's what that means. So there were a lot of little things that came up. Um, um, it, it, it says that the more I forgive, the less I'll resent. Oh, that was a new concept because my whole head was filled with a long log of people that I resented. And the more I began to forgive, the more I, the less I resent. And today, today if I'm resentful, I try to air that immediately, try to get rid of it, try to either share it with the person who I'm resentful at, share it with a sponsor, write about it, do something. I have the tools to get rid of a resentment mighty quick today because I know that a resentment makes me sick. Arbutus, wonderful Arbutus, um, she says, a resentment, she says, okay, supposing you decided you're going to veg out today and you got on your jams and you just made a cup of your favorite kind of coffee and you got the newspaper and you lit a candle and you put a fire in the fireplace and you've made a decision that you're going to spend the whole day reading the paper, drinking coffee, watching a movie and just really enjoying yourself and all of a sudden there comes a knock on the door and it's this neighbor that you really don't care for. You open up the door and you can make a decision. Should I let her in or should I not let her in? And you say, you know what, I'm really happy you came by today, but I'm, I'm going to just spend the day alone. If you'll come back tomorrow, you know, we can have coffee. And we can do that same thing about a resentment. We have the, we have, we are the only ones with the door, the key to the door. Are we going to let it in? Are we going to entertain it? Are we going to serve it coffee? Are we going to say, I'm busy today. I don't have time for you. I'm going to enjoy this day. I don't want, I, you know, come back, come back tomorrow. And it will. It will. <laughs> if not that one, another one, it will. <laughs> so um, anyhow, uh, there's, the, there's the how, the honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. 
Um, there's halt, you know, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. And although I am rarely hungry, I can often be angry. I can many times feel very lonely. And Tom says, um, loneliness just is. That was a wonderful thing. You know, that we're all, we all feel lonely. Loneliness just is. We don't have to, you know, we don't have to get nuts over it. This too shall pass. Um, and, and the tired, I, you know, when we work, I get tired and I get cranky and he gets cranky and, you know, I can visualize myself as a little kid, at, like one of my little kids put a blanket over me and put my thumb in my mouth and kind of lay in the fetal position and, and just leave me alone when I'm tired, you know, but if you bother me, I, I'm cranky. And um, so, and then there's the three Ps, powerlessness, positive, and prayer. And there are the four A's, which is awareness, anger, acceptance, and action in that order. The awareness of whatever you're angry about is number one. And then sometimes when you become aware of what it was, you become angry and you think, gee, why did, how come it took me so long? I've been, I've been feeling crazy about this for three months and I could have done something about it, but I wasn't even aware that it was causing me problems. So you can feel that anger and then you have to go, okay, what can I do about it? You know, is there anything that I can do about it? And that's either the acceptance or the surrender. And then if you figure out there's anything you can do about it, you go into action. And you, and you go into the serenity prayer. You know, is there anything um, that you can do to change the situation? Usually it's going to be about changing yourself. So, um, and I think that recovery is overcoming the fear of living. And most of the problems that we have are just based in fears. And, you know, we stay stuck because, you know, we're afraid to go upstairs. We're afraid to drive cars. We're afraid he's going to get mad. We're going to be afraid to fail. We're going to be afraid to succeed. We're going to be afraid they're going to go away. They're going to be afraid. We're going to be afraid they're going to come back. <laughs> so anyhow, those are the things that I learned in the program. Sponsorship um, <clears throat> is another area um, that is important. And I think in the program, it's like the first three steps. You know, you come to the program, you realize that you're powerless over alcohol, that your life is unmanageable. Then you come to find a God, and then you come to a place where you come to believe in that God, and then in the third step it asks that we turn our will and our life over to the care of God, and our will and our life is our actions and our attitudes, and so, you know, we begin to change. Now, the person who is going to help us change is in relationship with a sponsor. And if you don't have a sponsor, um, get one. It can be a temporary sponsor. Some people have sponsors that they have for their whole two million years in Al-Anon. I, however, have had a multitude of sponsors, and it's and they've been for varying reasons. Um, is a sponsor required? In my opinion, yes. I, you know, I, I just don't know how I could. I can't get along without a sponsor. I just had a. a, a an experience in June where unexpectedly my relationship with my sponsor came to an end and I want you to know that 15 minutes after that happened I had a sponsor another sponsor because I can't go five minutes without a sponsor I need one um, it's not that I call every day it's not that you know I I can't breathe in and out without I have to know that there's another person there that knows about me that can help me with their perception because mine is really grim um, so that's why the, the sponsor is important. How is a sponsor arranged? 
Well, you can go to a meeting and watch somebody that you really admire, and you watch them, and they say things. And in the beginning, there was a woman who came to my meeting all the time. Her name was Margie. And I loved the way she dressed, and I loved her makeup, and she had big hair. And when she walked in the room, everybody just kind of said, oh, Margie. And now she was never my sponsor, but when that lady walked in the room for the first several years I was in Alanad, I'd go, I would be okay just because Margie was in the room. And so that might be the person you want for the sponsor, is that when she walks in the room, you go, there she is, or there he is. Oh, I'm gonna, I know for this one hour I'm going to feel better. So that might be the way you pick a sponsor. I don't know. In my case, my first sponsor was arranged by my son's sponsor who said that I was interfering in, his, in my son's sobriety. Can you imagine? <laughs> and he called me up. Bobby called me up on the telephone and he said to me, Beverly, I have arranged for a sponsor for you. Get a paper and pencil. This is her phone number. Write it down. So I wrote down Sally and the phone number. And I says, what's that for? And he said, you are interfering in Stephen's sobriety. You need a sponsor. He says, if you knew anything about alcoholism, we wouldn't be in this mess in the first place. Oh, oh my God. So I called Sally, and she was the one who I would always tell me to blow my nose, um, and that she loved me. It's going to be okay, honey. Blow your nose. And I thought blow your nose was step one, you know. And, uh, so I always knew I had to blow my nose before I called Sally. But I always called her crying. And so even though I blew my nose before I called Sally, I was always calling crying. And so she'd say, Beverly, blow your nose. And then we'll talk. And so she, I'd blow my nose and she would just tell me, you know, she would just say it's going to be okay. Well, what does that mean to a newcomer? It doesn't mean a darn thing except for whatever reason it felt to me like I had been washed with warm oil. Just Sally's soft voice telling me, it's okay, Beverly, everything's going to be okay. Yeah, but, but he's doing drugs again. And she'd say, it's okay, Beverly, he's God's kid. It's going to be okay. You go to a meeting tonight. You go to a meeting tonight. It's going to be okay. That's the only thing she could tell me. I could, she couldn't penetrate through my fears and the resentments and the clutching and all of the control that I thought. It was all an illusion. She would just say, it's going to be okay today. Go to a meeting. And I want you to know that until 1988, I went to eight Al-Anon meetings a week and two open meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the only reason I'm probably still not doing it today is because I got my father who was dying of cancer and I couldn't do 10 meetings a week and could do cancer treatment and, and all, take care of his needs. And I called my sponsor and I said, oh, I can't do this anymore. And she said to me, well, Beverly, you've been going to 10 meetings a week for eight years. She says, why don't you pick a few and let's see if you really have a program. Whoa. <laughs> Let's see if I really had a program. I didn't know. She said, you might be spending so much time in Al-Anon meetings that you really don't have a program. Let's see. So I, I let go of everything except Horizon. <clears throat> and because I was going to Horizon Plus, um, Louisville and Friendship and Open and Conventions. And, and you know what I found out? I had a program and it was in place. And it was wonderful. So sponsors do things. Sponsors are not here 
not to hurt your feelings sometimes. If you're not getting angry at your sponsor because she had said something you don't want to hear, not nasty. I mean, you know, not controlling, not ugly, not nasty. But if she doesn't, if you, she gives you a perception of your behavior that you don't understand, if you don't get a little edgy, you've got the wrong sponsor because you have become friends. And sometimes that's not really a good thing. Um, <clears throat> I've had it both ways. And the sponsor that I have now, she said, um, we were talking about friendships, and she says, and, you know, in the process we'll become friends. And I said, you know what, I don't know if I want that right now. I says, I just want your, I just want you to be my guide. And I says, you know, maybe later on we'll do that. But I says, I have a tendency to see that if you get too, 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 too close, you, the, the, then all of a sudden the friendship, you, you think, oh, she's really, she's really nagging. But I can't say that because we're, you know, because of the friendship. So you might want to take a look at that. What do you really need? And um, when is the time right? Yesterday. Um, but however, it's never too late because I knew a lady in California who didn't ask somebody to be her sponsor for 17 years. And the reason was she went to a woman when she was six weeks in Al-Anon and asked this lady if she would be her sponsor. And the lady said to her, I can't right now. I, you know, I have a, my plates full. And because this woman was new and, and she didn't understand that this woman was telling her the truth that she couldn't if he didn't have time, that she would do better with somebody else, this woman took it personally that she wasn't good enough. And for 17 years did not ask another person. So please, if you've asked somebody to be your sponsor and they says, I can't right now, it wouldn't be beneficial to both of us, say thank you so much for being honest and move on to the next person. It's not about you. You're not a bad person. But her self-esteem was so low at that time, she couldn't, she thought, you know, it was... She took it personal. Can you change a sponsor? Absolutely. I have changed a sponsor because my first sponsor didn't have alcoholic children and my son ended up going out. Uh, and when he was seven, he came in the program when he was 15 and a half. He went back out full-blown drug addict alcoholic when he was 17 and a half and I had to ask him to leave. And now I was living somewhere where my sponsor had never been. And I needed to have somebody as a sponsor who had to put children out and watch young children, you know, dying of the disease of alcoholism. So I had to change sponsors. My next sponsor decided that she wanted to be a drug and alcohol counselor. That's fine. But we were no longer talking Al-Anon. We were talking things that were not conference approved. She was applying the principles that she was learning in her, in her KDAC um, accreditations. She was giving me that. And although it sounds alike, it's not the same. And, it, and there was a division in there. And I realized that I got uncomfortable. And so I got another sponsor. And then I got a sponsor that was the one who um, was one of these who found a fertile field of sick people. And I got manipulated and controlled. And all of a sudden, one day, I woke up and I thought, you know what, this feels just like it did when I was a kid. This feels like my mom. I mean, she did some public humiliation stuff, and it was really awful. And she had was a big, you know, she it was like this big kahuna Al-Anon, and I thought it was wonderful. And, and I mean, she... I couldn't do that, and it's fine for some people. Some people need that. I am not putting this down. I need tender, loving care. I, I, I have been abused and battered as a child and lived through 21, 22 years of active alcoholism. I don't need that kind of sponsorship. I need direction. I need kind, loving, honest, uncruel direction. 
And I get, I make sure that's my, when I grew in my self-worth and my value, I understood that I don't need to have that kind of people in my life anymore. It was a huge growth spurt for me. Um, can you have more than one sponsor? I, I personally, personally, this is just me, I think it's a conflict. However, if, if you're a, a dual member, an alcoholic and an Al-Anon, I think probably that would be okay. You should definitely have your AA sponsor if you're a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And some of them would like to have Al-Anon sponsors, and I think that's the only time when it's okay to have two sponsors. But I think an Al-Anon should stick with one sponsor because then what you have is a conflict. And, and we choose the easier, softer way. So if Barbara says this, and Helen says that, and Helen's way seems a little easier, we are definitely going to go with Helen. And so for me, I think it's best to have one person, one perception, and one uh, path to follow. <clears throat> um, how will a sponsor help me? Oh my God, I can't even, you know, it's like, let me count the ways. I don't know what I would do without sponsorship. I mean, it's just, um, it has been, the, it has been one of my single great tools. My journal, meetings, of course, my relationship with God and my sponsor have been my great tools. Um, so anyhow, uh, the sponsorship relationships, um, they should be mutually rewarding. And when I, I got that from a workshop, I went to a woman to woman in Oklahoma one year and I was having problems with a sponsee and my sponsor says, why don't you go to the, the two sponsorship workshops we're having this weekend and see if you can get some help. And so I'm sitting there and the word I got out of it that was wonderful is, is it mutually rewarding? If it seems to be a battle of wills or, um, you know, some people go up to me and they'll say, oh, Beverly, I want what you have. You're just wonderful. Well then the only way to do that is to do what I do. So the first time I say to them, well, did you spend some time with God this morning? Well, I had to, I, the car, and the, no. And I, and I say, well, peace comes from spending time with God. If that's what you want, I've just spend. Well, it's just always so chaotic around here in the morning. Well, let's get up a little early. Instead of getting up at six, get up at quarter to six. Spend your first 15 minutes with God. But I don't get to bed until midnight. And so when I see that there's always this kind of stuff, I'm thinking, I don't think you really want what I have because you're not willing to do what I do. Um, and I'm not even talking about spending as much time. I spend a committed hour in prayer and meditation almost 99% of the time. If you're not willing to spend 10 minutes, we're not going to be able to work together. And I have just re realized, you know, my time is so valuable, and I am willing to give from the soul if you really want what I have. But if you're not willing to go to any any lengths, I really, I haven't got that kind of time, you know. And the, the older I get in the program, the more I respect that about myself and about you. Maybe you're just not ready yet. And that's fine. You know, maybe your time hasn't come yet. Maybe you haven't got time to be that dedicated to your recovery. But I found from the very beginning that I had to be. I had to be. Um, learning to be a sponsor takes time and wisdom, and you're going to make a lot of mistakes. I believe that every sponsee is like fingerprints. They are all different, and we have to concoct some new and, and ingenious way 
to, to get through to whatever it is that we're dealing with because we are all different. Our stories are different. Our motives are different. Our defects of character are the same but different. Some people, you know, our career paths are different. So I have to get to know you a little bit. And I'm going to make some mistakes. And, and, you know, I used to take that really personally. But as my self-esteem grew and I began to grow in the wisdom that I had to share, I just, you know, I have learned that everybody is different. And so as our relationship grows, I learn what I need to share with certain people. Um, being a sponsor takes unconditional love. I mean, I have got some women that I normally we would not mix, <laughs> and you know, and we're and we end up in this relationship together, and they're wonderful. Um, I, I no matter who you are or whatever, I have to give you complete trust. Um, I must promise you that I will keep your anonymity, and I expect that you keep mine. Um, after this last deal with this last sponsor, I have promised that you will never know who my sponsor is. Occasionally I would share who my sponsor was. I am never going to do that again. I have a sponsor, trust me. She has 25 years in the program, and um, she works a fine program, and that's all you need to know. But the fact is, is that sometimes I want to share. My sponsor told me to say or to do this. If you know who my sponsor is and you know her story and everything, I'm breaking her anonymity. And so because of my last situation and what happened in that, I have decided that I will maintain her anonymity and I'm asking the girls to maintain mine. A lot of people ask me to be their sponsor because of what I get to do. And they think if they can go to a meeting and say, Beverly's my sponsor, then their people go, oh, oh, that's great. They don't have to even have a program. They just think all they have to do is drop my name, or there's people in Dallas, there's another woman in Dallas who they feel if they can just drop her name, you know, then everybody knows who she is, and they think, oh, well, that's my sponsor. So the anonymity, I believe, is very important. Nobody needs to know that I sponsor them or who my sponsor is, and that's just, I'm, I, I mean, I'm just locked in that now. Um, I want to be able to share myself with you as deeply as what needs to be shared, all the good, the bad, and the ugly about me. And if I think you're going to share that at a meeting, you know, that violates me and you. Um, no matter what time of the day or night it is, if you're in crisis, please call me. Um, and, you know, I have, I have two girls right now that I'm sponsoring that are in grave crisis, and I will take a phone call from them any time. Uh, one gal is losing her husband. And uh, the other one uh, has a very ill husband. And so I'm, you know, I'm available for that. I mean, God, if people weren't available for me during my, my times, and I'm on this hill right now. And the reason that there's hills and valleys is so that there's people up on the top who can help the people on the bottom. And I had 10 years in the bottom. I was in that gully 10 years where people were always reaching in for me and telling me they love me and pulling me out. And they were on the hills. And I'm on the hill right now. And I am loving that place. And I am not waiting for the other shoe to drop. <laughs> <laughs> but I know someday I'm going to have a crisis and the other shoe will drop and I'll end up in the valley again. But there'll be people who are going to be up on the hill that are going to jerk their hands up there and they're going to help me out. And I can depend on that today. I know they're going to be there for me. Um, and I hold out a first-class life, you know, and it was affirmed by my house guest who said that when she left, the only thing that she knew about me for sure is that I walk the walk. Um, I'd like to talk to you the next segment about my relationship with God, but I'm going to close this with something kind of fun. This is not conference approved, and it's things you can learn from a dog. It says, never pass up the opportunity to go for a joyride. Allow the experience of fresh air and the wind in your face to be pure ecstasy. 
When loved ones come home, always run to greet them. When it's in your best interest, practice obedience. Let others know when they have invaded your territory. Take naps and stretch before rising. Run and romp and play daily. Eat with gusto and enthusiasm and be loyal. Never pretend you're something you're not. If what you want lays buried, dig until you find it. When someone is having a bad day, be silent, sit close by and nuzzle them gently. Thrive on attention and let people touch you. Avoid biting when a simple growl will do. <laughs> on hot days, drink lots of water lay on, and lay under a, a shady tree. When you're happy, dance around and wag your entire body. No matter how often you're scolded, don't buy into the guilt thing and pout. Run right back and make friends. And delight in the simple joy of a long walk. Thank you.